0: Welcome back to Season 2 of Talking Points. This season, we're back with another 10 beautiful conversations with some of the world's most extraordinary dancers, choreographers and artistic directors. I'm your host, Claudia Lawson. Today, I'm speaking with Lucinda Dunn. Lucinda started her life in dance destined for London's West End, where her mum had been a performer. But a chance meeting with a young ballet teacher named Tanya Pearson saw a change of direction. And at 15, she flew to Tokyo to compete in the Prix de Lausanne and Lucinda's life changed. In this episode, Lucinda shares her life story, how she joined the Royal Ballet School in London before breaking her back and then being offered a contract with the Australian Ballet Company, a partnership which lasted nearly 23 years and saw Lucinda become their longest-serving ballerina. Lucinda's journey has now come full circle, A mum to two girls herself, on retirement, she was made the Artistic Director of Tanya Pearson Academy and she speaks candidly about what she looks for when auditioning students and what you need to make it in the world of ballet. Just quickly interrupting this episode to let you know that we're delighted that Lucinda Dunn's episode of Talking Points is sponsored by Energetics. Energetics are a sustainable, Australian-made brand that specialise in creating world-class dancewear for the stars of tomorrow. Perform and feel your best at every stage of your dance journey in Energetics' premium, high-performance fabrics. You can see their entire range online at energetics.com.au and for all Talking Points listeners, there's a 20% discount on all Energetics products using the code LUCINDA20 at the checkout and the offer is available until the end of March 2023. Lucinda Dunn, it is so wonderful to have you here on Talking Points. I wanted to start by asking where your love of dance came from.
1: I have danced my whole life. It was just something that I was born into, I suppose. My mother was on the West End of London in musicals and an entertainer on cruise ships. So she's a singer, dancer, actress. Um, And also my dad was in the theatre, stage director, carpentry. That was their life. And I suppose I was subjected to just being brought up in the household where there was music and there was theatre and there was dancing. Um, And I began in the ballet studio, actually as a tapper <laughs> <Did> <laughs> at the you? age of five. Yeah, was was tap was my first classes and then ballet and jazz and all of that followed afterwards. But it was just something that I was given the option to be an all round dancer and to do all different styles in my early years. And I, I really truly believe that that served me throughout my career.
0: And so were you living in London in your early childhood with your mum on the stage? No, no, I was born in Sydney.
1: Mm -hmm. Both parents English, but I was born in Sydney and and brought up here all the way till I was 15. Mm -hmm. But I did spend two years in London at that age at the Royal Ballet School.
0: And so tell me about that, because I believe you went to the Prix de Lausanne, which sort of changed the course of your career.
1: Yeah, that's true. I was dancing after school just at a local ballet school pretty much every day and all day Saturday, loved it. Mm -hmm. Um, But did ballet, jazz, tap, character, modern as it was called then, it's more now the contemporary field. And two ballet schools merged when I was about 13. And that's when I first met Tanya Pearson, who became one of the leaders, I suppose, or mentors in my life. She saw potential in me as a classical dancer and encouraged me to think about something to do with ballet. And at that time, I never wanted to just do ballet. I really was good at doing all the other um, genres as well. Tanya Pearson is renowned for taking young dancers um, around Europe when it wasn't really done by other schools. Okay. Just to sort of see other institutions and elite academies and place dancers if they were successful in their auditions to the next step to go to a finishing school to then to join a profession. And I joined that tour in 1989 and it corresponded with the Prix de Lausanne. I was just 15. As you said, it really did change my life. I was offered a scholarship that was pretty much open-ended. Wow. So they had this big white board and said, okay, what's your first choice? Which school in the world no, <laughs> do, <really? laughs> you, do you want to go to? And I was lucky my mum was there with me and I looked at her and I was like, what do, what do I do? I wasn't even thinking that I wanted to do ballet. My parents, being English and me being very young, very tiny and very naive, mm. preferred to go to a school that I would be looked after by family mm. So I was very luckily accepted into the Royal Ballet School and I lived with my grandparents in Wimbledon.
0: Wow! So
1: yeah, so it's a lovely story so that they, um, you know, I I was with them for that amount of time and my mum and my younger brother moved to the UK to support me through that first year at the Royal Ballet School on scholarship, but they lived in Sussex so that he could go to school and they lived with very close friends of ours for that first year.
0: Amazing. And was it an incredible experience training there?
1: It was, absolutely. I like to tell my students too that I've had idyllic training and I've had an, an idyllic career, but it's not like that. <laughs> so, within the first few months at the Royal Ballet School, I was diagnosed with a stress fracture of the spine. So it was a hairline crack in my lower back and the treatment all those years ago was to be in plaster cast plastered like in a tube um, from under my armpits to my hip bones Mm. for 12 weeks and three hours. And I couldn't dance a step. So my family had moved to London. I was on full scholarship. I was at one of the best schools in the world and I was sitting out of class. The whole point was to immobilise me so that I couldn't move my spine so that the bones could then reconnect. I don't think
0: that's the treatment now, but did it work? It absolutely did. And,
1: and it was probably the best option for me because as most dancers like to just test whether it still hurts or test whether it's going to get better. And the fact that I couldn't move, it had to mend, it had to gel together. But it was three quarters of a stone. It was plaster of Paris. So it was very cumbersome, very heavy. And I felt like I was traveling in a tunnel. I had my own tunnel around me and I've had no... Issues since, but I, I spent a lot of time in the physio, which was eye opening, and I was able to participate in other classes and academics. But it was hard for me to watch daily ballet class um, with my peers, you know, excelling and enjoying what they're doing. But I was really fortunate that the Royal Ballet School did invite me back for a second year and provided me with a scholarship to continue my training and to have me graduate.
0: Oh, so so it's not guaranteed that you would be accepted into the following year.
1: Yeah, so my scholarship was only for one year from the Prix de Lausanne. Um, So then that was all that I was thinking of going for that one year. So, and just sort of see how it progressed from there. So I was really fortunate that I was able to continue training.
0: And so then how do you go from there to joining the Australian Ballet? I had
1: done class with the Australian Ballet Company prior to leaving Mayna Gilgurd had also seen me dance at what was called the Genet competition in London. It's now called the Fontaine, which some of the budding ballerinas would know about. So she'd seen me dance and contacted me towards the end of my final year and offered me a contract, which, you know, I was over, overwhelmed with. Around the same time, I was taken into the director's office of the Royal Ballet School and I was also offered a contract with the Birmingham Royal Ballet. And it took me a long time, I think like four weeks or more talking to family, talking to the directors of the the school of what would be best for me. Both companies toured, both had opportunities for younger dancers, both had great repertoire, both had directors that gave opportunities to understudy roles. Yeah, it was really, really difficult.
0: Sorry, what was the deciding factor?
1: do I want to dance in Birmingham and tour around the UK or do I want to be back home? Mm. So I picked up the phone one day to mum. I think it was middle of the night for her. And my mum and my brother only stayed for the first year. So I was back in London myself for the second year. (laughs) And I just picked up the phone and I said, mum, I'm coming home. Uh Yeah. So I think um, that was, that was pretty much it. And then finished my year mid-year, which is the European um, schooling and, and American schooling time. And then I joined the Australian Ballet the week after.
0: And I was just, um, just 17. And so what was it like joining a professional company?
1: I felt very supported from day one. Um, I knew some of the dancers in the company, you know, a little bit from being around or from the Genet competition. And I was given opportunities pretty much straight away to understudy roles. And that could have gone either way with more mature or more seasoned dancers that were in the company. But I felt nothing but support and excitement. And um, I toured with the Birmingham Royal Ballet for three months in my graduating year. Um, I worked with the Royal Ballet briefly at the Opera House, just doing some walk-on roles. But actually with Birmingham Royal Ballet. I toured with Swan Lake. I did a Balanchine Ballet. So I was actually on on tour mm. as a quarter Ballet member. So I'd had a little bit of experience with being around professionals. I suppose I just learnt on the job, as they say, and day after day and was there for a very long time.
0: <laughs> well, I think that's right. I mean, I think you still retain the title as the longest serving Ballerina in that company, and actually in Australia, is that right?
1: It's correct. Yes, something I'm I'm proud of, yeah. and I'm very grateful that um that I was able to have that long, um, on stage and in a career that is so privileged.
0: Twenty three years. That's correct. Yes, it's incredible to now have heard that story about the fracture in your spine, and to think that that not only healed, but didn't give you grief, or you know other injuries pop up throughout that that time. I probably can
1: credit work ethic. I think I just got into the studio and worked, (laughs) that's all I can say, (laughs) physically and mentally and stretching and strengthening and honing my technique and learning about my body, learning about what works for me, trying to get better. So I think there's obviously injuries I've had throughout my career and none of them were life-threatening or career-ending or anything like that, but it was just about managing your body and looking after yourself. I always felt most comfortable on stage when I had rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed, so knew I could do whether it was a solo or a three-act ballet in the studio made me comfortable and a little less panicked going on stage thinking oh my god have I put it in enough work because I always knew that that was my responsibility to work especially towards the end of my career or to, as a principal mm. my responsibility to work as as hard and as sensibly as I could um in the studio so that then I didn't think is the onus on me that I could have done more.
0: And did the company, did you see a change over those 20 plus years? Because I think you had three artistic directors.
1: Yeah, Mayna Gilgood was my first director when I joined the company as that young as that young girl. Um, then Ross Stretton and then David McAllister um, took over. A change in the company, the repertoire has always been mixed and varied and very hardworking company. I think one of the, the most performances that a company does throughout the world a touring company, so always changing cities. The expectations are more now than they were 30, 40, 50 years ago about what the dancer's body needs to do, about what science and medicine does to support the dancer, that what the repertoire is and it's all it's all bigger and better and more. So I think that's probably one of the changes is what's expected of the dancer is, is more than what it was when I first started.
0: Yeah. And probably that aesthetic has changed as well because I think You know, it was that really thin look um, sort of 20, 30 years ago. But for now, for bodies to survive that long, it seems like there's much more work in Pilates and yoga and strength building.
1: Strength and fitness, absolutely. But uh, I think um, aesthetics is different to what different directors and different Mm, companies aspire to. When you're working so much, you do need to have athleticism. Mm. But aesthetics do play a part. It's just part of being on stage as a performer. So, yeah, it is essential that you a strong, a fit and have a look that, that fits, you know, ballerina's mould.
0: So you, you became a mum while still a principal dancer. Can you tell us about that decision and, you know, I suppose about your headspace, you know, obviously it's a big change to to go through a pregnancy while being a dancer, and what that was like for you? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, gosh,
1: My husband and I, you know, have always wanted a family, um, but it was just around, you know, what would be the best time in my career. And also, my husband, he was a a dancer, principal dancer with the American Ballet Theatre. And at the time when I met him, he was ballet master of the Australian Ballet Company. And then when David McAllister was um, appointed artistic director. My husband was the associate artistic director of the Australian Ballet. So he's in, in the ballet field very much as well. Mm-hmm. So he had a really, really busy um, work schedule and it was just a decision that we decided that this might be a good time in our lives. Mm-hmm. And I loved being pregnant. I, I danced until the day before um, wow. I gave birth. Um, so I was in, And I was in point shoes the whole time thinking <laughs> I'm would. i I'm not ready to finish my career. If I have to, then I will for the sake of my child. Mm-hmm. But it was always the hope that I could return. So I was doing ballet class in my lycra with boobs and a belly, <laughs> like literally the morning before I went into hospital. Oh, um, and I was fascinated. I was fascinated doing class and the way that my body adjusted to balance-wise with my extra bits. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but I, I enjoyed the process of being in the studio and still being able to dance and having the baby listen to music and feel the motion of movement, et cetera. And um, the Australian Ballet has this fantastic policy of our work safe um, pregnancy leave. So I was able to work my entire pregnancy. I was very well. I, it wasn't anything that I had sort of had to be home on the couch for. So I was in all different departments with the Australian Ballet in the wardrobe, working with philanthropy, being on the wow. reception desk, <laughs> coaching in the studio, coaching ballets to get onto stage. So I'd had that kind of teaching experience as well during that time, which then served my purposes for my career now, Mm -hmm. which is a teacher coach. So, and then I was back in the studio fairly soon after giving birth and I was able and very luckily being able to reunite with the stage and return to performing.
0: Wow. And was it different returning?
1: It was hard work um, for all these people that say you get a bikini body in five weeks. Well, you have to work really, really hard. And obviously I couldn't do a full ballet class nine months pregnant. So I was. there's all those fitness things that you need to rebuild. It did take a lot of dedication and work and exhaustion, I have to say. But I, I did get back onto stage in record time, which in hindsight was a little silly. But um, as I said, my work ethic was quite strong and I'd been asked to do a project with Christopher Wilden. Um, he, was, he had a company called Morphosis and it was performing at the Sydney Festival at the time. And actually Christopher Wilden and I were at the Royal Ballet School together and he's he's produced The American in Paris, which I don't know if some of um, the Australians that have seen that production at the moment. So I do have a connection to him anyway and he'd asked me would I consider being in the Sydney Festival and I'm like, oh, I don't really know because it's quite soon and I don't know what my body will do. And um, so I pushed and pushed, um, and I did make it onto stage for those commitments and that festival. But it was five months after giving birth. Oh, my goodness one of the costumes that I had to wear was a white unitard. Oh, wow. So that's a white all over for all of those that might not know that. So there was that added feature as well. I wasn't in a tent, I, so I had to be physically at peak. Oh I, I wouldn't recommend it, so don't take that as a recommendation to anybody to do it that fast. Um, but I, yeah, I had obviously had lots of support from my family to be able to to get to that challenge. Mm.
0: And you know, everybody is different. Some people bounce back straight away, and for others, it takes much more work. Um, Absolutely, yeah. And so, did you then return to the company in the role of a principal?
1: Yes, I did. Yes, I was really, really lucky that I just um, stepped into where I left off and took a while to get, you know, back into doing stuff comfortably and sensibly. I don't remember how long it was before I did my next principal role, but the position was held open um, for me.
0: So then you continued with the company and how did that juggle play out? Because obviously you're now probably slightly more sleep deprived and touring. How did you and your husband juggle that? It was hard. <laughs> um,
1: yeah, just touring and organising, like taking the, the baby cot and the bottles, like just the, <laughs> yeah. the simple things that you take to the park or you take to when you go to Grandma's house, this is now going interstate. But luckily both my husband's mum, my mother-in-law and my mother dropped anything and everything wow. when we said we're on tour, we're going to Adelaide, we're going to Brisbane. So we would have a mother with us to to look after Claudia um, at that time. (laughs) (laughs) But it's just managing, yeah, then when you're going into an apartment that you need an extra bedroom and I don't know, it just, it happened. We managed, we were organised and I look back on it now actually and I think, oh, my gosh, like, wow, (laughs) (laughs) trying to do a three-act ballet and a baby (laughs) And, and taking a mother, uh, yeah, I just, if I didn't have that support, I don't know how it would have been possible to take somebody with us to help because my husband, it was a six-day-a-week, eight shows a week that he was watching. So he was ultra busy also. To be honest, I'm a little bit dumbfounded to how it actually worked and I can't remember how all the logistics happened. But um, yeah, that was part of our, our, our life and we took Claudia also um, to Tokyo. I was in a World Ballet Festival. She had her first birthday again, so it's just we were, yeah, having to organise hotel rooms and my mum actually came with us to Tokyo at the time and they would take, go for walks and meet us for lunch somewhere in my breaks um, and hang around the theatre and, yeah, it was just just what we did. It wasn't anything different or unusual. It's just what we had to yeah. manage.
0: And really exciting opportunities and experiences for your mum and your daughter as well. Absolutely, Yeah. And so you went on to have a second daughter in 2011. Was that the time that you started to think maybe it's time to retire?
1: Not really. Again, I just thought, well, okay, let's have a, another baby again. If I was able to return, I would. If something, my children required me that they needed me more and I couldn't return to the stage, then so be it. That was something I was going to sacrifice. So I did the whole process again, did class until <laughs> the day before, <laughs> had the baby, thought, okay, five months is way too too short to get back onto stage. So I thought, well, the second time I have my baby, I'll give it a little bit more time. So I, (laughs) it was six months. (laughs) It was crazy. And it was on stage in New York doing Swan Lake.
0: No, (laughs) in a white tutu. So
1: so I don't, yeah, so so I don't do things half-hearted. I did not take my children at that point. My mum stayed with them in Melbourne, um, Claudia was at Kindy and Ava was only six months old. So that was all going to be too much to do an international flight and for me to, you know, deal with all the hormones and all of that stuff and trying to have such a uh, huge responsibility on an international tour. Um, but that was that was very emotional. That was hard leaving a six-month-old baby, you know, in Australia and, and flying to New York with my husband. Um, but it wasn't a very long tour. So that was sort of a, a consolation that it wasn't months away.
0: Wow. I mean, just absolutely incredible to hear and that, you know, that women and dancers can manage both and that it is much more of a possibility than perhaps it once was.
1: Absolutely. When I joined the company and we had principals that I looked up to and they wanted to start a family, it was pretty much that you left the company. There wasn't structure or infrastructure to have maternity leave that David McAllister introduced, which is a shame because most most ballerinas mature and flourish and get to that midpoint I suppose in your 30s where you you understand your artistry you understand your technique you understand acting so yeah it's it's not uncommon now for for dancers to have babies and return to the stage and continue to do so for many years
0: and for many athletes that point of retirement is a really I suppose tricky time because something's been so passionate and so dominant in their lives what was that decision making process like for you
1: well, I, I was lucky. I, I danced until I was over 40, um, which is quite – yeah, that's quite a mature age for a principal um, or for, for a dancer, I have to say. Um, I'd had lots of issues with calf injuries in the final years of my dancing and it got to the point where I was – you know, kind of thinking, oh gosh, am I going to be injured today or can I get through this performance? And I really wanted to finish also on a high for myself, for my expectations and also for the audiences. I didn't want to be that ballerina that should have left a couple of years ago, but it's hanging on. So I'd had discussions about a time that I would like to retire. And I feel really lucky that I was able to choose the time and also choose the ballet. And it was eight years ago, actually this month um, that I finished the Sydney Opera House with the ballet and I was dancing Manon, wow. which is a highly prized role and hu- hugely, you know, heartwarming in my, my efforts to execute this. And it's a tragic story, but, I mean, Manon's a tragic story. Mm. Um, but I was really <laughs> lucky yeah, that, that I had – yeah. <laughs> um, I had Farewells in Melbourne, which I, you know, um, performed it, all the performances that I was um, scheduled to and, and also in Sydney. You know, it was very emotional. Um, Manon um, enters via a carriage – and the gates open at the back of the uh, back of the stage and Manon gets out of the carriage and then runs onto stage. And I'm just there thinking before the show, oh my goodness, can the carriage just go just across stage and take me off? I don't know if I can cope emotionally by, <laughs> by performing a farewell performance, but it was a really special night and I had my daughters and my husband on stage at the end. And yeah, so it feels like a lifetime ago, to be honest, that eight years um, feels so much more, but it was time for me. Um, I didn't want to continue on doing something that I wasn't happy with. And it's such a, a very small difference between a great performance and mediocre. And I didn't want to get to that mediocre point because uh, I knew what I expected of myself and demanded of myself in every performance. So, and 23 years, you know, that's just an, a, an achievement in itself, oh, so i felt I felt very satisfied mm. um that I was able to get to that point, and I felt very relieved at the time as well that i could i didn't have to be at peak performance my entire life mm. um, and I, f- I also felt very lucky that i had had as i said i I do feel that this is a privileged art form, and that I was able to retire on my terms and in something that I was happy with.
0: Mm. I think so many people struggle when that doesn't happen for them, if they're forced out through injury or things just don't go their way and they're sort of, they don't get that final moment um, that's within their control. And so it's obviously a really beautiful full circle story that you had trained with Tanya Pearson. So how did you come to start in that role?
1: I've always been in touch with Tanya Pearson um, throughout my career, actually. She was always very interested in what I was doing and came to see me perform. And I used to go back to her ballet school, the Tanya Pearson Academy, and coach or teach a class when I was in Sydney and had some free time. She'd always get me in to come and even just speak to the students or, or see what they were doing or coach a variation, et cetera. So I'd had that connection through my whole career. And her youngest daughter, Nikki Pearson, called me, yeah, I hadn't announced my retirement, so it was just on a whim that she just said, look, her mum was was ageing and thinking about slowing down and the reins do need to be passed on at some point. Would I consider taking over her artistic directorship of the Tanya Pearson Academy? And, like, I was gobsmacked and thought, oh, my goodness, I know nothing about anything that's expected of me. So we had further discussions and here I am. <laughs> so I retired, as I said, eight years ago in the April period and from then I slowly um, transferred into the ballet studio and the workings of what it meant to be an artistic director and what it meant to teach coach students every day and that's where I've kind of ended up in, in this um, privileged role, prestigious role of one of the, um, you know, internationally known academies within this country um, and also overseas with such a high reputation and with that comes huge responsibility. Um, these students that I mainly teach um, are six days a week, so they're, they're not at school and it's all day, every day. And for me to, to take that responsibility and to try and coach and guide these students into a professional career, which is so difficult to get into even harder today than it was in yesteryear, as I said, the directors are seeking more, you know, everyone wants perfection. The companies are getting smaller. The funding's not there. The job opportunities, you know, is, is mediocre. It's, it's hard. It's, it's minimal. So all of that, you know, and, and I'm in the studio all day, every day, passing on my knowledge, passing on my work ethics, passing on what I feel, and also then looking at what the individual needs in front of me. I have a fantastic uh, team around me of faculty, so it, it's not solely my, but but as my name is sort of the headline, it, it is a lot for me to undertake and obviously I've developed and settled into the role and it can be really rewarding when I take students to the Prix de Lausanne, for instance. There, I've also yeah. been a juror on the Prix de Lausanne. There's big competitions internationally that offer scholarships or potential for students to be seen by academy directors, but also company directors. So on that level, um, it's, it's hugely satisfying.
0: Mm. And for those sort of budding ballerinas and aspiring dancers out there, what do you look for when auditioning students to say, join the academy mm.
1: um, individualism, I suppose, as in what they where their love is from that that soul giving of I'm in a ballet studio and this this is what I love. So you can see that pretty soon within a student, even in an audition process. We talked about aesthetics before. So if you don't have aesthetics of some sort to be a dancer, then it's going to be hugely challenging if you want to be in the classical field. Obviously, there are many forms of dance and many body shapes suit different styles, but classical ballet, I think we all know, has a certain look. I look for technique, I look for flexibility, I look for that artistry and sometimes it's really hard to tell, you know, when you do an audition class how that dance is then going to develop and how they're going to take on the role of a student and taking on feedback and corrections and but there's many different facets um, that one needs to take on a full-time student and I'm very true to myself when offering places that the dancer in front of me has potential and has a real opportunity rather than just saying, you want to do ballet all day, every day? Yeah, let's go. Uh, Because there's such an investment that's needed for the course um, financially, emotionally, physically. So all of those things need to be taken quite seriously in my and my team's decision making.
0: Mm. And do you think that it is, even though in some senses there's a real reduction of funding in the arts and it is tricky to get those positions in companies. Do you think that there's greater opportunity in that, you know, there's more contemporary companies and there's, you know, all these other avenues that perhaps didn't exist, like the pre-professional course at Sydney Dance Company and other smaller contemporary um, companies and independent choreographers. Do you think that there is more opportunity for students coming through?
1: Yes, there possibly is. Um, I know in Europe there's a huge number of of companies within one city and the opportunities for for projects, as we say, or for um, contemporary artists to take on, you know, different challenges, which is you're different from having a contract in a ballet company. Mm -hmm. So there probably is more opportunity for that independent artist who is happy to try and do anything they can for you know, for a job, as opposed to, I want to be in a ballet company where I I do have to do contemporary. Mm -hmm. I coach the students too, that we're talking about the Prix de Lausanne. When I was on the jury, we were given statistics about what the dancer needs. And out of the 100 marks, 25 marks is your classical class. 25 marks is your classical variation. 25 marks is your contemporary class. And 25 marks is your contemporary variation. So it's 50-50 of what a classical ballet dancer yeah. needs to be versatile and um, take on anything that's given to them in the contemporary field as well. Mm. So, so you need the, that diversity. The classic, yeah. The classical dancer needs to do everything. Whereas the contemporary dancer can get by doing good ballet, but not necessarily um, have those, you know, challenges of being, in, you know, in a quarter in a ballet in Swan Lake
0: thank you so much for your time today. It's just been, it's just been so insightful. You've really had such an incredible career and you speak with such resilience. And um, yeah, we just can't wait to see what the Tanya Pearson Academy and you continue to do with bringing professional dancers through the ranks. Thank you, Claudia. Thank you so much. Lucinda continues to work as the Artistic Director of the Tanya Pearson Academy. While also working and training dancers of the Australian Ballet Company and other performers arriving in Sydney. To continue to follow all of Lucinda's adventures, you can find her on Instagram at Lucinda underscore, Dunn underscore. Lucinda and I recorded remotely on the lands of both the Iwabakal and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, to whom we pay our greatest respects. Talking Points is produced by Fjord Review. Remember to subscribe to get the episodes as soon as they're released. And if you like us, please leave a five-star review. On the next episode of Talking Points, I speak with Mary Lee.
1: I wasn't prepared for that. Uh, And I mean, I think I had the perfect life. I had a beautiful baby, beautiful husband. His parents came from China. They lived with us. They looked after Sophie. I got on stage. That was all amazing. And overnight, that changed.
0: Your host and producer is me, Claudia Lawson, with additional production by Penelope Ford and Clint Topic. Sound production and editing by Martin Peralta at Output Media. And for the latest in all things dance, head to fjordreview.com.